Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and today's episode is presented by Volkswagen. Whatever your definition of family is, there's an SUVW that suits it. Co-host that suits me, Joe Wolfon, joins me remotely as always. Joe, what's up? Happy to suit you, man. <laughs> Whatever you need, I'm right here. Uh, yeah, and you're cheaper than a Volkswagen SUVW, I think. Um, wow. Well, I don't think that's a knock. I mean, geez, how much I is mean, a is an SUVW? I I would hope it costs less to secure an episode, a podcast episode out of you than it does to buy a SUVW. Listen, you can't put a price on good basketball banter. That's true. So <laughs> let's get into it. Game four in the books. Lakers up 3-1. Let's talk about it. Hey, man, I already told you how this series is going to play out. I said the Nuggets were going to win game three. Lakers were going to go up 3-1. The Nuggets were going to stave off elimination in Game 5, get everybody freaking out about how the comeback was happening again, and the Lakers are going to close it out in Game 6. All right, As you said, when, when I laid that all out, you don't even need to watch the rest of the series. Very true. Uh, now I feel like I wasted my time by watching Game 4. Well, it is I, worth watching just for the, the Jamal Murray glow up and just seeing what that guy is doing, how much he has grown, and really seemingly making the superstar leap it's unbelievable yeah i mean he had his overall performance was great finishes with 32 points eight assists on 60 percent shooting 12 of 20 but it was the individual moments like the spectacular ones that really stood out in this one among this great overall game that he had you know whether it was the jordan-esque um, mid-air hand switch um, i think it was around lebron too wasn't it was yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, like he went up for the dunk, LeBron's there to contest at the rim, and he kind of almost windmills it around with two hands to get to the other side of the rim. It was one of the craziest finishes that I've seen, like literally like a more impressive finish than the, you know, LeBron highlight from the 91 finals that get replayed the Jordan. a zillion times. The, you know, oh, a spectacular move yeah. like that. That that's was a, a spectacular move. That's, that's a good real. Marv Albert there. Thanks. Uh, maybe you should cost more than an SUVW. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then and then he has that in the fourth quarter. He's got he nails that like leaning lefty floater while falling to the ground while he's like perpendicular to the ground. And it's not like he used glass or catches rim to get it. He catches nothing but net on that shot. He's in another kind of zone, and I think you know. It, Something I wrote about after that game three win when he had 12 assists. I obviously like the scoring is popping right now and the shot making jumps off the screen. But his playmaking to me has also just taken like a, a significant leap. And like I've talked about before, I think that he's actually, you know, over the last couple of years made pretty meaningful strides in that department. But the extent to which he is manipulating the defense like the way that he is looking off defenders, getting them lurching in all the wrong directions before basically freeing up passes to guys under the basket and in the corners and making midair adjustments to do that and kind of looking guys off in midair until an option presents itself. Like the, some of the jump passes that he has made in the last couple of games are just staggeringly impressive. And it just like he he's putting it all together, you know, and like not just at the offensive end of the floor either. I think he's been pretty impressive defensively. He got switched on to LeBron a bunch of times in this game. And I thought did a really good job of just kind of like sliding his feet and using his body to stay in front. He's talked about how he added all this muscle during the hiatus, which I think seems to be serving him well at both ends of the floor. 
you know, his ability to just kind of like get inside, absorb contact and finish his in-between game. Like you mentioned that floater that he hit, like his touch on those floaters has been so spectacular and his finishing at the rim. Like it's, it's really just everything. Like he has kicked it up a notch in every single area. And I know like, we'll get to talking about the Lakers. I'm sure they won this game, <laughs> but I, I just feel like we need to acknowledge not that we haven't done it a whole bunch already, but the extent to which Jamal Murray has ratcheted his game up to legit superstar levels is, I think, you know, one of, if not the story of this postseason. Yeah, I mean, you wrote about it. It's not just that he, you know, is hitting those kind of miraculous shots and is shooting the lights out for the last few weeks. It's it's what you mentioned. It's that, like, he's he, he's found like a playmaking mastery that quite frankly has never been there at least not consistently he's showing up on the defensive end pretty consistently in this it's just kind of crazy to watch like this guy has taken a leap and look I guess maybe it's not that crazy when you consider that the time the teams were away and players were away and the league was shut down was kind of like an offseason depending on what you made of it right and maybe clearly Jamal Murray made the most of it so maybe it's not that crazy because it's just like a guy coming back into a new season a young player that has star potential coming back into a new season after improving in the offseason and this is what he is now but because it it's in the same season technically it just feels so ridiculous like I don't remember a player making this kind of in-season leap before. Like, I don't know, maybe you can argue Jason Tatum did the same thing this year. Yeah. Uh, so so maybe it's not that unprecedented, but it just, it feels unprecedented. And I tweeted this at, at one point in the second half tonight, but there are stars, legitimate established stars in this league that have never and will never have the type of playoff run Jamal Murray is having right now. Yeah, that's entirely true. It's just like... Uh, it's not something you can really replicate, right? Just like the scoring outbursts, the fact that, you know, he's led his team back from two 3-1 deficits. And, you know, despite the fact that they're down 3-1 to this very good Lakers team, like they've been right there. Uh, obviously, game one was a bit of a rout and they were coming off looking, you know, a little bit ragged after that seven gamer against the Clippers. But ever since then, it's been nip and tuck and that... Game two obviously could have gone either way. Um, they, I think one game three, you know, in relatively convincing fashion, aside from a, a near collapse in the fourth quarter when the Lakers went to that pressure zone and had the Nuggets kind of all out of sorts. But like this could very easily be a 2-2 series right now. You know, I think you can argue this could even be a 3-1 Nuggets. Like if they had just had a couple other things go their way, you know, the the rebounding has obviously been a big issue for them. Uh, the way their role players have shot the ball has been a bit of an issue for them. But for the most part, I think, you know, they've had a good game plan against LeBron. I think they've, you know, aside from that game one, defended well. Didn't do a good job taking care of their own glass in this one, and that burned them pretty badly. But in general, like, I think they've more or less gone toe-to-toe with this Lakers team that I think at this point we both expect to win the championship. So I was pretty bullish on the Nuggets future even before all this happened, just because I I like their young talent and like they're all kind of on similar timelines. And, you know, Jokic is already this established superstar at like 24 years old and Murray is 23. Michael Porter Jr. is coming into his own. And like, it's just, they they already had like a seemingly bright future and it's just, 
what Jamal Murray is seemingly already becoming, it just changes even, you know, I think an optimist projection of what this team can actually be. Given what I thought Murray could be, and to be honest, I, it wasn't this anytime soon, but given what I thought Murray could be, given what Jokic was, some of the young talent they had, how well managed that team has been, Malone, as I mentioned, growing with the team, I was bullish on their future. But even me being bullish on their future, if someone had told me, you know what, they're going to keep building. And in a couple of years or a few years, the peak of this team's run and buildup is going to be a really hard fought conference finals loss to a LeBron led champion. I'd be like, you know what? Like, yeah, I believe in their future, but that probably sounds about right. Like it's hard to break through and get to the finals or win a title. That probably is their peak. And now it's like, well, they're hitting that now. So me, the guy that's always preaching about how your first good chance could be your last, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, they're definitely going to get further than this one day, but it's hard not to believe this is just the beginning for them. They're that good. And Murray's made that kind of leap. But at the same time, you mentioned how it probably should be 2-2 and maybe even 3-1 Denver. The fact of the matter is it's 3-1 LA, right? And now even this team that's come back from 3-1 down twice this postseason has to do it against a LeBron-led team. And and some of it, quite frankly, is their own fault, right? Like them not taking care of the glass, as you mentioned. I, I was big on that after game two, you know, when everyone us included, we're killing Plumlee and and that last defensive stand there that resulted in the 83. I mentioned after that episode, or in that episode, how many mistakes the Nuggets made just leading up to that point, whether it was missed free throws in the fourth quarter or so many missed box outs. And then game four, it's kind of the same thing. Like the amount of times they got a stop on possessions where I was saying to myself, watching it, all right, just get a stop here and you're still in it. And they'd get that stop, but then not finish the defensive possession with a rebound. Like those are just such backbreakers. And I know, I know we've said that about this team like 11 times in the playoffs already, but at some point you really are going to end up with a broken back, especially when you're playing a LeBron James led favorite. Yeah. I mean, this back, this, this team's back is like made of titanium, right? (laughs) They don't break easy. So Jokic had those five fouls in the fourth quarter and the Nuggets were making these kind of offense defense substitutions and two straight possessions they pull Jokic off the floor for defense they don't put Plumlee in the game and they go small with Grant at the five and they wind up giving up offensive rebounds on both of those possessions after getting stops which is tough I would have just let you know Jokic essentially stay in the game and and rolled with him and if he picks up the sixth foul he does but obviously you know Malone didn't want to chance it wanted to be able to keep Jokic in there potentially for, uh, you know, the offensive possessions should he be needed, but um, they wind up giving giving up two backbreaking offensive rebounds on those two possessions, and that was basically the game. And you can even, I mean, you go back to the first quarter where, again, the Nuggets were playing, I thought, pretty sound defense, and Dwight Howard gets four putbacks in the first quarter. Uh, and it was just like, they were just energy plays. It wasn't even like blown box outs necessarily. Like, he was kind of just like, jumping over guys and like getting around them and sneaking into inside position. Like if you're a team that's kind of got its back up against the wall, like you can't let stuff like that happen. You mentioned Dwight Howard. Dwight gets the start in this game. And look, he, he finishes with 12 and 11. So he actually only had one point and one rebound in the second half, but he did his job. He had 11 points and 10 rebounds in the first half. You mentioned the offensive rebounds. He was a monster on the glass. Once again, you know, at various moments, was visibly frustrating Nikola Jokic. Um, I don't remember how many of the fouls involved Howard, but, you know, Jokic ends up battling foul trouble all night. 
I really don't think the Lakers could have asked for much more out of a Dwight Howard start in the conference finals in 2020. Yeah, I agree with most of it. Do you really think that he's frustrating Jokic though? I don't actually think that Jokic has had too much trouble with him on the block. No, I mean, he scored on him, but like visibly Jokic has looked frustrated at after various confrontations with Dwight in a way that I like just don't remember Jokic allowing himself to become with other big men and I don't know what it is like I don't know maybe yo maybe Dwight saying doesn't something. everyone doesn't everyone just get super frustrated with Dwight Howard fair enough is, isn't that just kind of like Te- his teammate, ammo? teammates or opponents but yeah exactly you know, the Lakers couldn't have asked for much more even if it was just really one half of really good play like look I think Dwight's had a solid year all around. He's kind of just filled his role on this team. He's allowed them to stay solid when they go really big, which is how they prefer to play this year. He's done his job on the defensive end and on the glass. And and yeah, I just think, you know, to start him in game four of the West finals and get this performance out of him. If you're Frank Vogel, like you got to be thrilled. And I will say, I think like, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now. And so maybe I'm wrong about this. I, I was a proponent of them kind of sticking essentially with their rotations that they had in the Houston series and just primarily using AD at the five. I do think that is a much better look for them offensively. But from what I've seen, uh, I feel like defensively, they've been much stronger with two bigs on the floor in this series. And it makes sense. I mean, they have switched the Murray-Jokic two-man game a lot. And that's frequently leaving small guys on Jokic. Uh, and if they can do that, while, you know, and, and on both ends of that switch, really, like whether it's Murray trying to take a big guy off the bounce or Jokic trying to take a small guy in the post, having an extra big on the floor close to the rim is just makes that situation, I think, a lot more tenable. And so, yeah, I, I, I kind of understand defensively why they like that look. I think it's made it tough to kind of get the LeBron AD two-man game going at the other end of the floor. But Dwight's done his job as well as they could have asked in this series for sure. What do you think about LeBron's game in this one and and his game in game three? Because I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with how the Nuggets are playing him. I think they've done a good job. But something that really just stood out to me in this game was like, I don't know, man, like his isolation game doesn't look all that great right now. And he, whether it's just a lack of burst or what, like he was hunting mismatches pretty much all game. And he got MP, MPJ switched onto him a bunch of different times. He had Murray on him a bunch of times. He got Jokic on him a bunch of times. And I think, you know, when he's getting the ball kind of in that mid post area and operating out of the triple threat, then he can be pretty effective. But anytime he was going up against one of those mismatches and, and trying to initiate from the top, he got like nothing out of it. And again, part of that is like when he's initiating from the top, the Nuggets are just like really pinching in from the wing. Like they're almost building a wall around him like he is Giannis. And because he hasn't been shooting the ball especially well, that's been really effective. And honestly, like I think one of the biggest mistakes the Nuggets made was late in the game, they're really pressing up on him. And Jeremy Grant sent him to the free throw line like a bunch of times, just kind of playing him too close when laying off and kind of letting him shoot essentially was more of a winning strategy. When you mentioned them kind of treating him like Giannis, you know, I was going to say, well, like when his jumper's not going, it is like watching Giannis. And yeah, where I was going to go with that is, and then then the problem is the Nuggets and especially Grant bailed him out on a couple of late fourth quarter possessions that, you know, again, we I mentioned the all those times the Nuggets got stops and couldn't close the possession with a rebound. There was a lot of those possessions too, where it was like, man, like LeBron can hit a jumper right now. You know what he wants to do. Why are you 
like practically touching noses. Like, you know what's going to happen here. Just let him shoot. Don't give up. They were in the bonus, and they gave him two fouls and four shots there. I think he made three of them. That's huge in a game that was this close with maybe your season on the line. Like, little things like that kind of bothered me watching the Nuggets. But yeah, in terms of LeBron, I it's weird. I, I There were times when I almost thought he looked tired on the offensive end, whether it was like what he was settling for, which part of that is the Nuggets, or him just not really like having that burst and 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 being as decisive or aggressive. But I say that, and then there was a couple times in the fourth quarter where I thought he defended his ass off. There, you know, he had that two-handed block at the rim on Jamal Murray, which might have been a foul, but still, it was a great effort. And then yeah. he beat almost everyone down the court to finish a layup after a really nice cut on that same kind of sequence. So maybe it's not fatigue. I don't know what it may. I think it might just be his jumper is, it has abandoned him right now, and that happens to LeBron here and there. Maybe that's all it is. His jumper abandoned him, and, and when it does, it's a little tougher for him. And then. I will say too, and you brought up this point in our text correspondence tonight while I was once again praising playoff Rondo, but you know, look, I, I think Rondo had a solid game tonight. Um, I know you pointed out, he I think he was a team hot, team low or game low, maybe um, minus nine, but I thought overall he was solid. He had another good defensive game. He knocked down a couple shots, like a couple just ridiculous ones again, where it's like you want him taking that shot and he knocks it down. He had seven assists and one turnover, which is, you know, something I've mentioned a few times in the playoffs now that he's taking care of the ball. His facilitating has seemingly helped the Lakers in that they need another ball handler out there. But all that said, to your point, when we were texting tonight, him being out there and the lack of spacing and the cramp spacing that creates also probably creates a lot of problems for LeBron, especially when his jumper's off. And if you remember, I think it was game one against Houston when they lost. The first game Rondo came back when they gave him, you know, seemingly too many minutes. And really the one game out of his play, his 2020 playoff resume so far that was bad, was not good playoff Rondo. That was the game where, you know, LeBron famously angrily looks at Frank Vogel and says there's no spacing on the court after um, I think it was a failed drive or a brick jump or whatever it was. So it is a really interesting subplot where I think Rondo's giving them a lot of stuff they do need, but he also might be taking away from LeBron. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that is what I was kind of pointing out to you when we were texting. And I think as impressive as he's been on an individual level, and I actually think, you know, one of the big surprises is like when the Lakers have put the ball in his hands, He's been quite effective. Like they, I don't think they have any business being as successful as they've been when Rondo is running pick and roll. But for whatever reason, the Nuggets just like can't seem to get under screens in time. And sometimes they're not even trying to get under. They're, they're going over top of screens against Rondo, which makes no sense to me. But there were two or three different times in this game where he just flies off of that screen and is able to turn the corner so quickly. And suddenly like Jokic is backpedaling and has no hope of staying in front of him. That's been a really effective weapon. It's just like letting Rondo run pick and roll. And like you said, giving LeBron a breather, not having to have him initiate every single possession. But I do think, you know, when Rondo's playing off of the ball, it becomes a lot more difficult. And and a lot of the time when LeBron has sort of had those mismatches that he's trying to attack from the top of the floor, the reason that the Nuggets are really able to squeeze in toward the middle is because they don't necessarily have to pay attention to certain shooters. And one of those guys absolutely is Rondo. So, you know, despite the individual success that he's had, I still think him being on the floor oftentimes makes it a lot more difficult for the Lakers to run good half-court offense. I think big picture, Rondo's been a positive contributor for them in this series, for the second series in a row. But I don't think he's been the defining role player of this series. Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who I mercilessly ripped early this season, and quite frankly, I thought rightfully so, 
ended up putting together a, a pretty solid season and has been, as we both agree, the best role player in this series. I was marveling at the fact that he's just flat out better than Danny Green now. Like it's not it's not a debate. He's better than Danny Green. He offer he's a more dependable shooter, which is insane to me. And he's probably been a better defender, at least in this series too. But I don't think that's necessarily a hot take by any stretch to say he's been the best role player in the series. You do have a pretty sizzling take related to KCP. So drop that. Well, okay. I don't know if I actually believe this, but in the heat of the moment when KCP was in the middle of like a really nice stretch, which he's had quite a few of in this series, you know, just kind of ripping guys in the post, getting the Lakers out in transition, hitting his open threes. And because he's hitting all those open threes, he's forcing really hard closeouts. And one of them, you know, he got closed out on the corner, uh, attacked the closeout baseline and went in for a two-handed dunk. I just think he's been awesome and has played his role so exceptionally well. So what I texted you in that moment was, I think if you flipped him and Gary Harris, or just if the Nuggets had KCP instead of Gary Harris, that I think they win the series. I don't know if I actually believe that, but I I'm do editing. Think- I'm editing out you saying you don't know if you believe it twice. <laughs> so that takes you away from the hot take. Okay. If the Nuggets had KCP instead of Gary Harris, I think they win this series. I just, I believe that almost more for what that would take away from the Lakers than what it would give the Nuggets. I do think the Nuggets have needed, like Jeremy Grant's given them some of that. I mean, he gave him 26 points in game three, 17 in game four, has done a generally pretty terrific job guarding both LeBron and AD. A lot is being asked of him and he has delivered. But I think, you know, obviously Gary Harris is like a super important point of attack defender for them, but he's been a zero offensively. So they've just had to close games without him on the floor. And I think... Having somebody who, you know, was able to actually give them some offensive punch would knock down open shots when the Lakers defense is loading up on like the Jokic-Murray two-man game would be really, really important for them. And and Harris just hasn't really given them that. And meanwhile, like what KCP has given the Lakers is, you know, for one thing, he has been the guy who more than any other role player on the Lakers is punishing the Nuggets for packing the paint. But he's also getting them out in transition a lot because he's generating a lot of deflections and steals. And that's been so important because the Lakers half court offense has been stuck in mud for a lot of the series, you know, like they won game one because they were out and running almost every possession and the nuggets kind of managed to slow the game down in games two and three. And suddenly things get a lot more difficult for LA. And like, you know, their half court offense, I thought was better in in game four than it was in games two and three. But a lot of that also just had to do with the fact that they were getting to the line a lot more frequently than they were in those games. Not that that doesn't reflect good offensive process, but I think, you know, a lot of stuff was just undisciplined stuff from Denver and not getting, you know, defensive rebounds, all that stuff that we talked about where, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, feel a lot of confidence in the Lakers when I see them running their half-court offense. So I think the fact that KCP has been such an integral part of getting them out in transition is a big reason I feel like, you know, if if you just took him off of the Lakers and put him on the Nuggets, I legitimately think the Nuggets might win the series. And specifically with the Harris replacement, they like it's just kind of another example of how up and down a long playoff run is. Basically for everyone that's not like the top-tier superstars, like Gary Harris's return is a huge reason why Denver was able to beat Utah and Denver was able to turn things around on the defensive end after playing like some of the worst 
postseason defense I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. Gary Harris's return like helped them turn that around. Gary Harris was huge in the second round. More than halfway through the conference finals, we're talking about how if you p- replaced him with KCP, the Nuggets probably beat the LeBron and AD Lakers. It's just, and I don't honestly don't disagree with that. It's just another reminder that we get every year of just like it, when you go on a long playoff run, basically everyone except the top tier superstars, and even them, they'll have bad games here and there, but like everyone else can go like the swings, the wild swings from one series to another between a role player looking like. Oh, you know, in the right situation, you're like, that guy could get like 15 million a year to like, oh, they might have to get this guy off the court. Like they can't play anymore. It's it's insane. And it happens every year with every team and like almost every role player. And it's it's always a really kind of fascinating subplot of a long playoff run. And I think one of the issues for Harris in this series too is there's not really anyone for him to guard. You know, like he is Denver's best defender, but he's too small to guard LeBron or AD. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, you could have him, you know, guarding at the point of attack and being a help defender who's, you know, ostensibly guarding, a, you know, a Rondo or a Kuzma or somebody like that and is just offering help and roving and mucking up the middle of the floor. Like he can do all that stuff, but I do think he's best as an on-ball guy and a guy who's getting through screens and putting in rear view contests and making things easier on, you know, the big man who's involved in that action. And it's just, you know, aside from maybe allowing him to be the guy who's like defending Rondo and pick and roll and actually fighting through those screens and not letting Rondo get downhill. It's like, what you know, what is having him guard Danny Green or Caldwell Pope or Alex Caruso? Not like, what does that do for you? I mean, like shutting off those guys' water is still important, but it's not as important as say, like sticking him on Donovan Mitchell in the Utah series. You know what I mean? So... I think that's part of the challenge is like his defense just isn't as valuable in this matchup as it would be in, you know, a matchup against a team that is more guard focused. And because of that, you know, if he's not giving you anything offensively, then it really doesn't make sense to have him on the floor. So I don't know. He doesn't have a place defensively in this series almost. So if he's not knocking his shots down, especially his open ones on the other end, it feels like a pretty uphill battle for both him and Denver. But um, that's a really long way of saying, you heard it here first, Joe Wolfon says, Contavious Caldwell-Pope is the most important player in the Western Conference playoffs. With that, we'll Mana take Mana from break. heaven, man. Mana from heaven. No, don't ever forget that. Rob Palinka. We clowned him. I clowned him maybe more than anyone else for trying to convince us that the Lakers signing Contavious Caldwell-Pope was akin to bread falling from the heavens when uh, when I believe the Israel... <laughs> I, I think he got the parable wrong, to be quite honest. But uh, it's, it's looking like Palinka might have been correct because there have been times in this series where the Lakers were wandering in the half-court wilderness, <laughs> desperate for water and or bread, and Contavious Caldwell-Pope was that blessing. But on that note, we're going to take a break and come back and talk East Finals. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. 
All right, the East Finals, like the West Finals, are 3-1 in favor of Miami. Celtics facing elimination. Definitely the most trouble they've been in yet in these playoffs, and they now have to reel off three straight wins to save their season. What did you see in Game 4, and what gives you hope that Boston can pull this off, if anything? Other than uh, Bam out of bio. Bam might be injured. Yeah. <laughs> That's, well, listen, I, I will say, if, if Bam is out, which I don't think he is, because I feel like we would have heard something by now, but if he was to be out then I would I would legitimately fear for Miami's ability to even win one more game because he's been that important in this series. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've said before, I think he's been the best player in the series. And the Celtics really just haven't had any answer for him. And whether that's been at the offensive end of the floor where he is just, you know, continually stonewalling them, whether he's helping at the rim or involved in the central action and just switching on to guys and shutting them down one-on-one they they haven't been able to solve him at that end and and at the offensive end of the floor for Miami they haven't really had an answer for him in the pick and roll either and like downsizing hasn't particularly worked because he's been able to take advantage of their smaller guys their bigs haven't been effective against him because he's just kind of like cutting and diving and slipping into space and you know he when he's been operating kind of from the high post as a hub a dribble handoff guy a, a high post playmaker who is initiating you know their kind of split action and picking out cutters he's just really had his fingerprints all over this series and has kind of dominated the Celtics and without him i definitely think they'd have a pretty good chance of coming back and winning although also you know if he were to be out I also think that it would be totally in character for this Heat team to just still find a way to win because I don't know. That's just kind of what they've been doing all season is like as an intellectual exercise, you can try and like think your way through a matchup involving them and find reasons that you don't think that they should win. And, you know, them without Bam, like you would find every reason to believe that they have no chance and then they would just find a way to scheme their way through it or effort their way through it or just cut and pass and shoot their way through it because that's what they've been doing all postseason. I mean, they are, what, 11 and 2? 11 and 2. They're 11 and 2 in the playoffs. Like, they're not just making a surprise run potentially the finals like they are romping through the eastern conference playoffs and it's madness man like if bam were to get hurt i would expect them to maybe lose three straight games and then that would be when like after kind of deferring for a lot of this series that would be the one game where jimmy butler comes out in fu mode and goes for like 40 and completely dominates you know like that that that's kind of what would happen with this heat team but it's interesting because yeah you're talking about them like romping and rampaging through the east they're 11 and 2 but then it's it's weird because usually the type of playoff teams that say maybe get to the finals by only dropping two games in conference are like these dominant 60 win teams that are running rough shot and blowing teams out the heat are just like winning but they're not like this series is a perfect example the celtics and the heat are dead even in terms of to- aggregate score through four games the celtics have been the better team probably three out of four games the heat until the second half of game four had yet to even build a lead larger than eight points. And like that's kind of what's hilarious about it is because you talk about them romping through the East and they have from a win-loss perspective, but then you actually look at like the process and the in-game results and it's like, they're not romping at all. They're just surviving. And then they have enough smarts, I don't know, tenacity, like every intangible that you usually don't want to just say it boils down to is what, how they're kind of winning these games. And, you know, Spolster is obviously a master, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're going to need Bam to close this thing out. But 
Honestly, now that Tyler Hero is the best player in the world, they might not need Bam. Holy hell, this kid, 20 years old. Guys go off for big scoring games. That happens. A guy coming off the, a 20 year old rookie coming off the bench, scoring double figures in his first 13, in each of his first 13 playoff games, like that doesn't happen. That level of consistency off the bench from a rookie doesn't happen. And the other thing that doesn't happen, forget the 37 points he put up. Again, it happened, like guys get hot, but he's not just a shooter. Like he's a multi level scorer. He was punishing the Celtics' drop coverage at times in game four. And then the couple times that they actually showed more aggressively against him, he showed really nice poise, patience, and playmaking vision to like find a cutter, find Bam a few times as a roller. Like he's a pretty complete player. His playmaking in the bubble has been great. Uh, I think right now he's um, second on the team in rebounds and first in assists in this series. Like he just kind of has the whole package right now. And I don't think he's the defensive liability that a lot of people have made him out to be. I mean, he's not great on that end, but I also don't think he's the kind of guy you can just hunt all game and feast on. Like he's yeah, for, for a rookie. He's fine. Right. Like, I exactly. still think he's not great, but it's not like he's completely helpless or completely lost on that end. And like, he's never going to be a good defender. You know what I mean? Like he's, exactly. he's kind of just run of the mill rookie bad at that yeah. end of the floor. I think he's shown enough on the defensive end for a rookie and in an Eric Spolstra heat system where I don't think anyone should be thinking that like his defense is going to hold him back from like reaching some sort of star level or all-star caliber play. Like I, I think he can be this guy, just kind of get better in an Eric Spolstra system and be an all-star pretty soon. I mean, I, I made the joke to you last night. I think he's a future all-star and you replied by saying maybe next year. Maybe a bit of hyperbole, but yeah, I see no reason why he can't be in the future. And I do think, you know, that Heat scheme does a good job of hiding him at the defensive end. And they've really empowered him offensively. And I think a big thing has been, you know, Dragic moving into the starting lineup. Kendrick Nunn is basically out of the rotation. And so when Hero comes off of the bench, he's kind of running the show. Like they are putting the ball in his hands a ton and he's essentially running point. And... You talked about his playmaking. That's been maybe the most impressive thing to me, and that's coming off a game in which he scored 37 points. I just think he's making really advanced reads, just like objectively great passes, and you know, doing all of it on the move. I think that's been kind of like the through line to me, both in terms of his scoring and his playmaking. It's how he's able to do those things so effectively while in motion. And it's, you know, coming off of pin downs and stopping on a dime to pull up for threes. It's essentially, you know, the, the catch and goes where he's almost revving up and starting his drive before he even catches the ball. And it's the ability to kind of read the defense. And it's not like there's no panic in his game, right? Like he will be moving a thousand miles an hour, but the game still feels like it's moving incredibly slowly for him because he is able to like make these reads despite the fact that he never stops running. Um, and I think, you know, like that, that cutting basket that he had late in that game, that was almost like the nail in the coffin of the Celtics where, you know, Butler has the ball kind of in the mid post and hero loops around uh, to the weak side of the floor and then does this like little split cut with Dragic cuts down the middle. There was a defensive breakdown from the Celtics, but it's like, that is what the Heat do to you. They never stop moving. And Hero has been a really important part of that. I mentioned that I don't think he's the kind of guy you can just 
you know, continue to hunt. One guy that has been hunted, and it, game four especially was the game where it was Kemba, very... Man. Kemba, yeah. The Heat went after him from tip-off to the final buzzer. Like, they attacked him on every position possession in a way that they haven't yet in this series. And uh, they, it, it was pretty fruitful for them. Yeah, it was... Um, man. I, and I thought, honestly, like... I, we talked about the adjustment, right, of putting Smart on Dragic in game three. And that was obviously really important because Dragic was torching them. But that left Kemba guarding Hero a lot of the time. And honestly, I thought maybe they were too slow to adjust and put Smart on Hero because he was just... I mean, a lot of it was difficult shot making, but like he was able to rise up and shoot over Kemba. He was able to beat him off of the bounce. Um, when Kemba was guarding Crowder, they were just using Crowder as a screener and forcing Kemba to switch onto Butler. And Butler was kind of having his way with him a bit. It was just nonstop and merciless. And I, like, I, I have praised Kemba's effort at the defensive end of the floor before. I actually thought he was quite good at that end in the Toronto series. But with Siakam struggling the way that he was in that series, the Raptors just like didn't really have anybody who could take advantage of that mismatch. So they almost stopped hunting it. Or like when they did, they just weren't particularly effective at doing it. And the Celtics were really good at scramming him out of those mismatches in that series in a way that's become a lot tougher because of how motion heavy the Heat offense is. They, I don't know. They, they got to find a better way to hide him, I suppose. I thought they could have done a better job, A, of fighting some of those switches because they conceded a lot of them, I think, a lot more easily than they needed to. I, I don't know what, like, I think you got to keep rolling with Smart on Dragic and when Hero comes into the game, maybe find a way to rejigger the matchups and maybe just provide a little bit more cover to Kemba and like shade a little bit more help over. So he's not just having to tackle these assignments one-on-one that's going to open stuff up elsewhere, but like you can't just keep leaving him on an Island and letting him get cooked like this. Yeah. Another guy for the Celtics too. Like we talked after game three about how, even though statistically his first game back wasn't great, he, he made some positive contributions and that was Gordon Hayward. Uh, we cannot say that after game four, like he was undeniably terrible in game four. And I don't like, look, maybe it's because in case you didn't hear it, um, the first 88 times they mentioned it on the broadcast, his wife did give birth to a baby earlier in the day. And, and I don't know, maybe, you know, his mind wasn't there. I don't know what the case may be. Maybe he's just still rusty, but like, that was bad. That was as bad a game as he's played in the last couple of years since his return from injury. And that's saying something, but he wasn't moving well. He looked sluggish. He was missing point. He missed one point blank layup on an off, off an offensive rebound. Like he was missing easy shots. He was not in tune defensively. Look, I mean, in a series where the Celtics were already down two one in a game where the heat were hunting Kemba, like they needed, they needed something else to kind of go their way. And, and Hayward even approaching his usual type of performance would have helped them but yeah they you know they didn't get anything close to that from him no doubt I don't know man I think look the the Celtics are still incredibly talented and even if Bam is healthy I don't think they're just dead in the water like I think they still have a chance to get back in this series but they man I don't like you, you mentioned the fact that like the cumulative scoring in the series like it's dead even right on aggregate like through four games, they've scored the exact same number of points. But I started to feel a shift, I think, in that game four, where in the first couple of games, I was like, honestly, I don't know that the Heat have necessarily played better than the Celtics. They have kind of just 
committed highway robbery and stolen both of these games. And then with Hayward back in game three, I thought, you know, the Celtics looked back to being themselves and thought they had a pretty good chance of coming back and winning the series. But game four, I thought they were soundly outplayed by Miami. I think Spolstra is out coaching Brad Stevens. And I, I just, the Heat, like, as far as just basic execution, they just feel a little bit more locked into me, a little bit more precise. They know what they're doing like, and what they want to do more than the Celtics seem to. The Celtics seem to like get pushed out of their comfort zone a little bit more easily than Miami, to, Miami does. They feel a little bit less adaptable to me. And I, I just think so far, it feels like the Heat have answers for what the Celtics can throw at them in a way that I can't necessarily say about the Celtics. One thing we saw from Miami too, like speaking of being adaptable in this game is that, and they didn't just do it when the Celtics went small with Hayward instead of Tice. They they did it with Tice uh, on the court as well. Is they didn't bring Olenek into the game and they had, they went small. They went with Solomon Hill at one point and, and at another point they had Iguodala kind of playing the five. But I thought that was an interesting wrinkle because again, it's not like they only did it when the Celtics were small. Like the Celtics had Tice. And I know height-wise, Tice would still be a small ball center, but he's a, He's a big man for all intents and purposes. And yeah. and the, the Heat still went small with uh, either Hill or Iguodala at the five in those situations. Tice isn't really going to hurt you as a scorer, you know, against a small lineup. Like maybe he can hurt you on the boards. I mean, there are certain things that you can do kind of slipping behind the defense and as a screener, um, slipping out of screens. Like there are still ways to punish a small lineup that don't involve just sort of like posting up. But I do think... The, you know, the complete lack of threat level from Tice as a scorer makes it way easier to go small against the Celtics team. So, yeah. And to be honest, even though the Heat were going small, they, you know, the same way we were talking about the Lakers killing the Nuggets on the offensive glass, the Heat killed the Celtics on the offensive glass in this game, despite going small for stretches of the game as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, is kind of part of them not really having an answer for Bam. Like yeah. Bam has really hurt them on the offensive glass. And Butler has too, honestly. I think like Butler was all over the offensive glass in that game four. And that's another one of those things where it's just, I hate to be reductive and boil basketball down to these platitudes about just sort of wanting it more. But there's a certain doggedness and tenacity that the Heat have played with that I don't think the Celtics have matched in this series. Yeah. And I don't know how many teams this season have been able to match the Heat's tenacity, to be quite honest with you. I think that's going to do it for our conference finals talk, but we're going to use the last 10, 15 minutes of this pod to talk. I don't know if it's coaching news as much as it's... Uh, okay, so it's not It's not the Billy Donovan thing. Billy Donovan is now the Bulls coach, came as a bit of a surprise because you know we thought, as most did, that him leaving OKC was probably about him not wanting to be part of a, a rebuild if they trade CP, maybe putting himself in position for a more of a win-now job. He ends up going to Chicago. I don't know. Maybe the money was better. It sounds like a four-year, $24 million contract, so $6 million a year. Pretty good. But as much as he can claim he has faith in the young talent there, I still think between Chicago and OKC, Shea Gilgis-Alexander is the best young player, and the Thunder by far have the better long-term projection when you look at their assets, whatever. So uh, I don't really know what else there is to say other than good hire for Chicago. Bit of an interesting choice for Billy Donovan there. And I know you mentioned you don't really have much to say there either. I think the more interesting coaching news, even though it's not fully news yet, were reports that emerged this week that the Sixers have reportedly made it known that should they hire Mike D'Antoni, and right now it sounds like it's between D'Antoni and Tyron Lue, that should they hire Mike D'Antoni, they will be willing 
to perhaps make some trades. And the obvious place our minds are going to wander is that that would mean perhaps a Ben Simmons trade. And maybe that is me deducing far too much from far too minor of a report, but it's a possibility. It got us thinking about a lot of things relating to the Sixers. Give me your thoughts, first of all, on A, Mike D'Antoni taking over this team, the roster as it currently stands, and what you think the roster should look like if Mike D'Antoni takes the job. No names were mentioned, so I'm already assuming that they're going to look to make a trade. I just don't think that anybody is going to be interested in trading for Al Horford or Tobias Harris. Exactly. So what are they doing? Well, I'm sure they're going to explore those trades, but I don't necessarily think that that means that... And I also think, you know, if it... If it was a question of trading one of Embiid or Simmons, I think if they're building a, you know, quote unquote, D'Antoni team, that Embiid would probably be the guy they would look to trade. And I'm on record as saying I think that would be a horrible mistake. I don't necessarily think they should be looking to trade either of those guys. But if they were, Embiid is 100% the guy I would want to keep. But I do think just given D'Antoni's preferred style, playing up-tempo, and... Not necessarily, you know, when when's the last time he coached like a plodding big man? Kind Dwight of Howard in LA? Was Yeah, did he coach that team? Yeah, he did. The, the year Kobe blew his Achilles out and they barely made the playoffs. Like the year they had all those expectations with Nash and Dwight and uh, right. Antonio was the coach. And he got himself fired, didn't he? So yeah, I don't know. I just think his style has been like a little bit more up and down, a little bit more spread out. And I, I feel like he would be more intrigued by Simmons as a building block than by Embiid. I think it would be super interesting to see what he could do in that situation, even if they, you know, didn't make any moves uh, because it's like such a different team from what we're used to seeing him coach. And I actually think, you know, he's proven himself to be fairly adaptable. Like the, the team that he coached in Houston did not really play the same way at all that his Phoenix teams played. And so he's proven, I think, to be somebody who can, tailor his coaching philosophy to the personnel on hand what would that look like with the Sixers team you know is there something that he could unlock um, with Simmons and Embiid can he make these sort of mismatched pieces fit together somehow I think it would be a big challenge but something I would be really fascinated to see and as far as the roster I mean look it's it's clear to me that there's an imbalance there they are short a ball handler and somebody who can just kind of organize their offense a little bit and be a pick and roll guard who can allow both Simmons and MB to spend more time, you know, serving as screeners and rollers in the pick and roll and not necessarily having to rely on Ben Simmons in transition or having to rely as heavily on Joel Embiid in the post, but somebody who can give those guys the ball in the right spots, allow Simmons to you know, find a role in the half court as somebody who is getting the ball on the move and not necessarily having to initiate, you know, or play from a standstill when defenses, you know, it's essentially know what to expect from him and are giving him like 15 feet of space because they know he's not a threat to shoot the ball. I don't know how they get that guy. Like, how do they get the point guard that they need? I'm sure they're they're going to make a run at Chris Paul, but you know what does that trade package look like? Exactly, like what even if even if you're including Matisse Thybul in it, you know, like a, a really intriguing three and D rookie, like that's still not enough. Like what? Okay, so what about this? If you're OKC, would you be interested in Tobias Harris, Thybul, and a first rounder? No, 
No? No, I think you can do better than that for Chris Paul after the year he just had. Yeah. And if you're OKC, do you really want any part of that Tobias Harris contract? Well, but you're going to have to take back huge money anyway. Like, Not necessarily long-term money. Yeah, but I mean, Tobias Harris is what, 27? It's not the worst. Like, I well, guess maybe... I don't think it's the worst, but I think you can do better. So I don't think it's the best. I, I don't think it, it's the worst. I also don't think it's the best. In terms of salary matching, you're looking for you're looking for something that's just short term, essentially, even if it's totally dead money. No, it doesn't have to be dead money. But look, I, I said a couple episodes ago after OKC got eliminated that or when the reports came out that it sounds like they are more hellbent on trading Chris Paul maybe than they were last year that after the year he had, I don't think they have to be like pressured into a bad deal. Like if they get the type of package that is like a no brainer, like we got to make this move for the future, you do it. But short of that, I don't think you give Chris Paul away just for the sake of giving him away. And to me, getting Tobias Harris, and okay, Matisse Thibel does intrigue me, but getting Tobias Harris and Matisse Thibel in a first round pick, I don't know if that if that future upside is worth it to give up Chris Paul because I think A, you can, can hold out for a better deal. I don't know, man. Like I'm not a huge Tobias Harris guy and that contract is pretty bad, but like he's a relatively efficient scorer. He's basically in his prime right now and will be presumably for the rest of his contract. Completely afraid of the moment in the playoffs, but that's another. You wouldn't you wouldn't have to rely on him. Like you don't you don't necessarily well, need Well, they're rebuilding, so they yeah. won't have to worry about that in the yeah. next few years anyway. But but my point is like even the way you're talking about him, like I don't disagree with that. He's a solid efficient scorer that I think is a very 82 game player. There's nothing wrong with that. Contract's not great, but again, like if you're OKC, why do you make that deal? I mean, like if you okay if you're if you're Sam Presti right now, and if and the Sixers bring you that offer, are you making that deal right now without even like waiting to see maybe what comes out of the offseason, what other? Oh, no, no, I'm not. Like obviously they're going to explore the market. They're not just going to jump on the first deal that comes their way. I'm just not convinced that there's going to be a deal out there that's better than that necessarily. There might not be, but I think there could be. And I think even if there isn't, I think they they can just wait because I don't think it's good enough of a deal to be like super intrigued by it right now. Look, what I was going to say is even me who no longer believes in the Embiid-Simmons partnership just a year after I picked them to get to the finals is still fascinated by the idea of Mike D'Antoni coaching them both together. Like if 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 they hire Mike D'Antoni, even though it doesn't make any sense for them to have both those guys, if they hire D'Antoni, I would almost be more interested in seeing D'Antoni coach both those guys together than I would by them trading one of them to make the roster make sense more. The other thing I will say though, I would trade Simmons before I trade Embiid. I'd, I'd be worried about the long-term outlook because Simmons long-term should be more durable. But what I was going to say is that like you mentioned the point of D'Antoni not really having a, like not having coached a plotting big man in years. And then mentioning how, you know, he, he made a different style work in Houston than he had in Phoenix. Well, the other thing I'd argue is like, even just from like a pace point of view, like Houston wasn't exactly a, a great pace team under D'Antoni the last few years. They shot a lot of threes and they, I think, they got her well, in transition. Before, so, so Russ made them a, a, like more of a running team this 100%. year. 100%. But, but the year, the two years before that, they were like bottom five or at least bottom 10 in pace. Like they played very slow. Exactly. So what I was going to say is like, I don't know, is it that inconceivable that Mike D'Antoni, if the Sixers were to, to go down the road or they do trade, say, Ben Simmons, is it that inconceivable that Mike D'Antoni could create a really good three-point centric offense around a plotting big man in kind of like 
a four out one in system, similar to say what Stan Van Gundy did in Orlando with Dwight Howard. Like, I don't think that's that crazy. Stan Van Gundy in Orlando is a good example of that system. And so is the system that D'Antoni ran in Phoenix with the Mari Stoudemire essentially serving as the one in, but that would still require a, a pretty dramatic shift, I think in Embiid's game, because those systems were built on essentially spread pick and roll. And the big men just kind of being rim runners. And like, yes, like Dwight drew a lot of attention in the post. Stan still ran a lot of stuff for Dwight in the post and used that to kind of draw in the defense and create open looks on the perimeter. But I don't know, man. Like I I think generally D'Antoni has not used the post game as a staple of his offenses. So, you know, is he willing to adapt to Embiid's game and say, okay, like we're going to have a post heavy offense because that's what Joel Embiid needs. Or is he going to say, look, Joel, you're, you're a role man now, you know, or, you know, you can use him in the pick and pop as well if his three pointer becomes more reliable, but I don't know. It's, I guess it's tough to say. I think we saw, we saw in the playoffs, the limitations, both of the roster around Embiid and of Embiid himself in a certain way. You know, when his post game has to be relied upon, essentially, to be the fulcrum of Philly's offense. I just think because of the way defenses have evolved, it's really difficult to, like, build an efficient offense that way. And it's fairly easy, I think, for good defenses to scheme against that. But again, like, if there were a different roster in place around him, then that would become a lot easier. And I think, you know, this even goes back to what we were talking about with Jamal Murray. And something that I actually, like, stuck in my craw a little bit that I said on the last episode that I've wanted to walk back since I said it was, you know, I was talking about Jokic in crunch time and just how, I mean, just Jokic in general, really, and how I thought, you know, with a special player like Jokic, you could run a really efficient late game offense through a big man uh, and through the post. But I think the fact is like that just becomes so, so, so much easier when you have a dynamic guard like a Jamal Murray uh, who can force the defense into some really difficult choices. And the fact that the Lakers, you know, have decided that they're going to switch a lot of like the Jokic Murray actions is a result of the fact that like they have to counter Jamal Murray's pull-up game and his off the dribble game and suddenly you know because of his scoring outbursts and the way that that's attracting defensive attention like that is allowing Jokic to operate against these mismatches in the post whether it's the fact that teams have to decide to switch or they decide to blitz Jamal Murray and that means that Jokic is kind of getting a four on three slipping underneath the defense like Everything that Murray is doing right now is making Jokic's life way, way easier. And that is something that Embiid did not have the luxury of at all in that first round series against Boston. Yeah. And the guy that has not done him any favors in terms of building the roster around him, Elton Brand. If you want a reason for pessimism for Sixers fans who, I mean, they're Philly sports fans. Pessimism is their middle name. But reports on Thursday from Keith Pompey, I believe, that forget Elton Brand being on the hot seat. It sounds like he might get a three or four year extension. And one of the reasons provided by sources was that they think Brand has done like a good job being the front man and kind of taking the hits for the franchise. But it's like, 
yeah, he's also put you in position to take those hits as a franchise because of the roster he's built. Like, I'm not saying it's all Elton Brandt's fault. I, I wrote a piece after Brett Brown got fired about, like, blame can be shared in a lot of ways. And, you know, there's been failures top to bottom in that organization post-process. But to reward Elton Brand for, quote-unquote, taking the hits for the franchise when he's part of the reason they're taking those hits, to me, is just, I mean... I don't know if I want to go there, but it, that's like Nick's Kings-esque, okay? That is some ass-backwards way of running a basketball organization. And yeah, it would I, be like the Bucks coming out and saying, you know, they're, they're really excited to extend Mike Budenholzer because he took the hits for the Bucks' playoff failures. Exactly, you know? Like, read your own room that you've set ablaze. Yeah, it does sound like they intend to stock that front office with... With, with a lot of other guys who are going to supplement Elton Brand. And I think um, as far as just like scouting and cap management, uh, I, I don't think it's just, and not that it has been a one-man operation these last couple of years. Like they, it fully has been a team effort. And I don't think that should solely fall on Elton Brand. They decided to make him the face of this thing. I guess they're happy for him to continue in that role. And I mean, the pressure is absolutely going to be on because they have taken what once looked like maybe the single most promising situation in the league, just given their surplus of draft picks and young assets and turned it into not a hopeless situation, but one that suddenly looks like there is far less upward mobility if it's not just coming from, you know, an extraordinary Ben Simmons leap or Joel Embiid kind of doubling down on his commitment to, you know, getting better at both ends of the floor. Like it's, that's what it's really up to at this point, unless they can swing, you know, a Hail Mary trade that gets somebody like Chris Paul in the door, you know, what else is there? They're kind of locked into this roster. And as far as, you know, draft picks to trade or, young players who might theoretically blossom into building blocks. I really like Thibel as a defender, but I don't see him as ever having the kind of offensive upside that's going to make him like a foundational piece for this team. It's like, I don't know. They kind of just have to hope that what they have in place can like get better together. And I don't know if that's going to happen. Yeah, as you know, uh, I'm not holding my breath on either of Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid making good on their especially Embiid, perennial claims that they're going to be better, get in better shape, develop three-point shot for Benz. They're like, like, I know these guys, they're not like eight-year vets, but they've also been around a few years now where like the sample size is big enough where it's just, I'll believe, I'm at the point where I'll believe it when I see it from these guys, you know, I think. And also like even the Chris Paul thing, like I'll be honest, based on what we know about both guys so far, I don't know how much Chris Paul is going to like Ben Simmons. Because <laughs> the... Uh, Jimmy Butler didn't seem to like Ben Simmons very much from a competitive standpoint. If you kind of read the tea leaves and the reporting that's come out of Philly the last year or so. So I don't know. People change and maybe Ben Simmons also didn't play in the playoffs this year. And I I don't know. I don't think that I would have made, you know, made the difference between them winning or losing that series against Boston. I think that it would have made them more competitive in that series for sure. It's not a perfect fit, but I haven't just like totally given up on it either. I do think that they have constructed a team around those two guys that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I think the times we've seen when there has been a team around those guys that makes sense, 
they can be really successful. And that's why I still do give, you know, especially Embiid, I give the benefit of the doubt just because, you know, the one time that we saw a roster around him that made even a smidgen of sense, they came within like a crazy buzzer beating shot of going to overtime in game seven against the eventual champs. He, he just needs guys around him who can make his life easier and put him in positions to succeed until he actually has that. I'm not going to like put the Sixers failures on him because I really think that he is a special player. And I'm not saying that he's blameless in all of this, but I do think that it's really unfair to place this team's failures at his feet. Oh, I think it gets, should get placed at a lot of guys' feet. Front office, I thought Brett Brown deserved some blame. He's now fired. But I do think, as I think we agree, Simmons and Embiid both still get some of that blame, you know? And even, even that seven-game epic against the Raptors that came down to the four-bounce prayer, Embiid's presence was huge in that series, and it bore out in the plus-minus. But... As I mentioned, you know, off air when we were talking, like even in that series, it's like if Joel Embiid had any kind of real post game in that series and and wasn't just trying to bulldoze Marc Gasol every time he got the ball, like maybe that series ends differently. And, and that was a year ago. And he came back this year and didn't really improve in that area of his game. Yeah, but the Sixers literally, <laughs> I know we've had this conversation before. The Sixers lost that series against the Raptors in the minutes that Embiid was off the floor. I, no, I understand that, but what I'm saying... They lost that series because... Like, like they, they could have won the Embiid minutes even more had Embiid had a postgame. More than plus 90. Across, well, do, you, across do, you remember, do you remember his numbers in that series when matched up specifically with Marc Gasol? Like, in terms of his individual offensive production. You don't think they could have won some of those minutes a little more if, like, two more of those possessions go Philly's way? Because Embiid actually has a post move to go to instead of thinking he can truck over Marc Gasol? Yeah, I guess he could have had more counters specifically for Marc Gasol, but Marc Gasol is like basically the only post defender in the league who, you know, has demonstrated an ability to force him out of deep post position and defend him like without sending him to the free throw line consistently. Well, the and, good news from Joel Embiid then is that Marc Gasol looks like he's got one foot in retirement. Based on- but like how... I just don't see how you can blame Joel Embiid for a series loss I'm in not, which like he won his minutes by 90 points I'm in not, a series that his team lost. And you're saying he should have won his minutes by more than that. That's the thing, though. I'm not blaming him. I'm not saying he's the reason they lost that series. I'm saying if he's, he's the reason they almost won that series. But I what I would argue is that based on how good he is and how much potential and talent is in there that had he committed to actually improving and developing his own game over the last few years as much as superstars at that level and that are being relied upon by franchise are supposed to that I don't think it's inconceivable yes they win those minutes by even more because like I said they only needed a, they needed one more possession to go their way and we saw so many possessions in that series and I don't yes it was a lot of it was Marcus Saul being Marcus Saul but some of it was just Joel Embiid having no counters and some of it was he spent three minutes on the bench in game seven and they got outscored by 12 points. Well, if they had won, if they had won those first minutes by 91 instead of 90. Oh, man. Uh, all right. We're getting nowhere with this. Yeah. But I, I really do think I, I just don't know how they how they get the player that I feel like they really need. Which that we is, agree on. <laughs> which is just a, a dynamic off the dribble playmaker. Like, how do they how do they come across that guy? I, I mean, I, they're just th- those Horford and Harris contracts right now just look completely disastrous because I, I don't know if it would take an asset 
you know, to attach to get off of them. Like, I don't know if they're that significantly in the negative as far as the, you know, the asset value, but they're not getting anything back in return for either of those guys. I don't think that's like making their team better. Let's end with this. The reports at the time were that Jimmy Butler might have stayed if not for Brett Brown and Ben Simmons. Multiple people have like insinuated that if you knowing what you know now, which is honestly just that they ended up firing Brett Brown a year later and that Ben Simmons still hasn't made the leap necessary, but obviously still has a very bright future. Knowing all that, you're Elton Brand a year ago and Jimmy Butler says to you, if you fire Brett Brown and trade Ben Simmons, I will sign long term here. Would you do it? The Brown thing, I think you do easily. I think you would. But would would you have traded Ben Simmons? No, I wouldn't have traded Ben Simmons. Um, I just like so much younger, like still a, a ton of runway and an opportunity for him to be a, a really special player for a long time. And, I, you know, we've already started to see it, like just with the defensive upside that he has. I think you have the ability to construct a really, really devastating defensive team with just, you know, Embiid and Simmons as your core. And I don't think it's worth punting on that necessarily in order to appease a guy who's on the wrong side of 30. I, I wouldn't have done that. I, I 100%, if all it would have taken was to get rid of Brett Brown to bring Butler back, I think that's that ought to have been a no-brainer. But I think it's it's an interesting point because there, you know, we were just talking about, okay, well, if you bring in Mike D'Antoni and Mike D'Antoni wants to coach a certain type of team, does that mean you look to make a trade so that you have a roster that better suits the coach that you hire? I mean, you're kind of getting into the same sort of thing. I know with, with like Brett Brown and Jimmy Butler, it seemed maybe to be more of a personality clash than a stylistic clash, although Butler was griping about the offense and how there wasn't enough pick and roll being run. So maybe it's a little both. But I think in general, changing your roster or, you know, trading an all-star type of player for the sake of your coach is generally not the best idea. I think, you know, if we're going to say that they should have just fired Brett Brown rather than let Jimmy Butler walk, I don't think we can in the same breath say, well, if they bring in Mike D'Antoni, then they're going to have to trade one of Simmons and Embiid. In any event, a lot of decisions to be made in Philadelphia, but maybe their roster construction won't actually allow them to make any kind of meaningful decision one way or the other. The decision we're going to make is we'll be back next week with two more episodes. Thanks, Volkswagen. And honestly, very good chance that we're previewing a Lakers Heat Finals when we return next week, which the LeBron Miami subplots there. And even if okay, you well, we already know that the Nuggets are winning game five. So true. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb, actually, and say that both of these series are going to Game 6. Okay, well, forget everything I said then about the LeBron, uh, Pat Riley slash Miami subplots. And we will talk to you next week when we're previewing maybe Game 6s and 7s. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cachado. Pound the Rock.